Uh, well, good evening, everybody. So glad to see you guys here. Thank you for coming out. Uh, this is our last night of the Going Deeper series. I have had a ball doing this. I uh, hope you've enjoyed uh, d doing some of this uh, along with us, going deeper into some of these topics. That over the course of uh, the months of January and February, uh, in our services on Sunday, we did a series called The Story of God, where we did just an overview of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation in eight weeks. But realize that there's some things that come up when we read the Bible, some of these vexing questions that, that, um, that we got to wrestle with when we read through the scriptures. And so we wanted to create this space where we could go deeper and address some of those questions. And so over the course of these weeks, we've talked about how do we read the creation story. We've talked about things like um, slavery in the Bible. What is biblical justice, the meaning of the cross, church and culture, then and now. And then we wrap up tonight with a discussion around reading Revelation and how to read Revelation responsibly. Because when we get to the end of the biblical story, we come to this really weird, really bizarre book. And I think a lot of folks, and I think perhaps especially uh, young adults, sort of go, is this for me? Like, is there anything here for me? Is, is Revelation worth the effort? Um, sometimes even a sense of, it's scary. I, I don't, I don't want to go there. And I believe that, that this book is for us. That in fact, this book is one of the most timely books of the New Testament for us. That it has some really, really important things to say to us. And so in order to try to help kind of make that case, I thought how better than to invite a friend who is actually a young adult to talk about the, the relevance of the book of Revelation for uh, young adults in particular, for all of us as followers of Christ in our contemporary uh, 21st century North American context. And so I'm thrilled tonight to have uh, Caitlin Chess, who is here with us. Uh, Caitlin is a first-year PhD student in political theology at Duke Divinity School. And uh, she's a graduate of Dallas Seminary, was a student of mine there. Um, she is the author of The Liturgy of Politics that brings together focusing on spiritual formation and our political engagement. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. And I think, in fact, going to give away a few copies of that book here tonight. You may know her from her uh, presence on Twitter. She's a great Twitter follow if you're not already following her. Or you may know her from her participation in the Holy Post podcast with Phil Vischer. Uh, she's a regular contributor there. Uh, I know her from her first semester at Dallas Seminary. I can remember where she was sitting in my class. And I can remember that the, the kinds of questions she was asking and the kind of contribution that she was making distinguished her from very early on. And we just connected and, and hit it off and developed a, a great relationship. She served as a grader for me, um, uh, helping support me through teaching that class a number of occasions, and we just developed a special friendship. She traveled to the Philippines with my wife, Kim, to visit my refuge house, an, an IBC ministry partner, and then uh, last spring, we, uh, we parted ways as she headed out to North Carolina to begin her PhD studies, but I am just so thrilled that Caitlin is here with us tonight. So, Caitlin, thanks so much for your willingness to join us. She uh, isn't actually in North Carolina right now. She's actually right now in Wheaton, Illinois, my old stomping grounds. And so <laughs> hanging out there at a friend's house, but uh, jumping on uh, Zoom with us tonight. So thank you for being a part. And, Caitlin, um, I want to just open it up, and, and I want to do this, you guys, not just to plug what I think is an outstanding book, but actually because it makes a connection to some of the things we're going to talk about tonight. Caitlin's book is called The Liturgy of Politics, and her specialization in her PhD is political theology. And there's a connection here that I think is important for uh, the discussion of the book of Revelation. So I thought maybe, Caitlin, you could begin by just telling us a little bit about the project and kind of what you're trying to do uh, in the book, and then we'll sort of tie it in 
uh, perhaps later to this discussion of Revelation, but tell us a little bit about the liturgy of politics. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks for that, Dr. Jones. That really just made my day to remember that first <laughs> semester that yeah. I was there with you. Um, yeah, so this book is really about, as you said, the, the intersection of spiritual formation and political engagement. And it was born out of my early semesters um, at the seminary and recognizing I was learning all of this stuff about the importance of spiritual formation, about our habits and our practices, and the way that the rhythm of our lives shaped both, you know, came and shaped our beliefs and then the way our beliefs shaped the rhythm of our lives. And yet was seeing the destruction of political idolatry in churches around me and felt like there was a disconnect between those two conversations that we had a sense of, okay, spiritual formation is not just about my inner personal piety or about my inner sense of calm or well-being, but it has something to do with my life and my community and the way I interact with my neighbors. And I thought we need to connect that kind of language and way of thinking with that extends to our political lives, because it's not just about who we vote for. That's really important. But our political lives involve the kinds of relationships that we build in our very like immediate communities, the way that we interact with our actual neighbors, the way that we interact with the people at our local school or in our grocery stores. And all of those relationships should be formed by particular practices that the church has handed down throughout centuries. Um, and the end of the book is focused on revelation as just a way of saying, not only is this an incredible resource for thinking about our political lives, and we, we can talk more about that, but also just a sense that what the Christian story says about humans and human communities beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation is not just instructive for individual Christians or instructive for Christian churches, but it's instructive for how we live our lives in our entire communities that involve really important political decisions. And if politics includes just what it means to build a life together amongst people who you know, care about different things, have different needs and desires, and have to coordinate those together to seek a flourishing human life and community, then the end that we are seeking, the end that's described in scripture should shape the work that we're doing today. And then, and because so much of the work that we're doing today is shaped by our spiritual practices, those should be shaped by the vision at the end of Revelation. That's good. So good. So uh, I'll tell you, one of the things that uh, Caitlin said to me shortly after the book came out that just meant so much as a huge compliment to me is somebody had read the book and said, seems like you've been spending some time with Barry Jones. And that was just, for me, a huge, a huge compliment because it really is, you guys, a fantastic book and has some, I think, really important ideas. So I would commend it to you for, um, for your uh, reading and engagement and uh, congratulations in advance to those of you who will walk away with some copies of the book tonight. But we're going to kind of tie back in maybe as we, as we get going uh, to why the book of Revelation is connected to some of this project that you're on about. But I thought we'd actually just begin the discussion um, by talking a little bit about, in order to, to understand a book like this, especially a really complicated and sometimes, frankly, really bizarre book, is that we have to actually begin by talking about its genre like the style of writing this is, and its audience. Who's it written to? And I think we actually see some of that right here in the beginning, the opening verses. And so I want to just read, if you have your Bible, you can read along with me. I want to read the first 11 verses, and then um, Caitlin and I kind of talk a little bit about, bounce back and forth on what we see here in terms of what this tells us about what kind of book this is, who it is for, and what it's trying to do. Okay? So listen to these words in the opening verses of the book of Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants 
what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to, sermon, to, the, to his servant John, who testifies of everything that he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take, uh, take heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. And to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering in the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So right here at the beginning of the book, we get a little bit of orientation that this comes to us from a guy named John. Um, some scholars suggest this is John, who's the apostle, the, the, the follower of Jesus, the one who was with Jesus, um, laying his head on Jesus' chest at the, at the Last Supper, right? The, the one who's called the beloved disciple. Others suggest maybe this is actually a different John who's, who's writing this. But it, it is written by one who has uh, been sent to the Isle of Patmos. Um, he's there because he's been sent there in exile. Um, and he is writing to churches that are suffering under opposition and even persecution from the empire. But we get some things right off, Caitlin, that tell us a little bit about what this book is. And the first thing that it says is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation, the very first word of the book is apocalypsis. Um, and that word itself gives us a little hint about what it is, what kind of book it is that we're reading. Can you say a little bit for us about understanding apocalypsis and the idea of the apocalyptic genre? Yeah, I'm just so you know, everything I say tonight, I'm going to be worried is something you told me that's just <laughs> come back out of my mouth. But um, there's a, a line that Flannery O'Connor has that I love where she talks about how um, sometimes you have to be shocked or startled into mm. recognizing what's in front of you, that for the heart of hearing, you have to shout. Um, and for uh, the blind, you have to draw large and startling figures that for people who are very comfortable in a certain context, sometimes you need something bizarre and strange to get you to understand what's happening. And so that the word not only means revealing, sometimes we say revelation so much, we forget that that, that is an English word that we kind of have an understanding of revealing something, but understanding that there is a purpose to the strangeness, that it's yeah. not just for fun. Sometimes I think I grew up and I thought, is God messing with us? Like, is this just <laughs> supposed to be difficult and annoying? Like it could have been clearer and I could have been less scared of it. And yet there's the sense of, you know, everything that we encounter in the world is fallen and we don't have a sense of how things actually should be. And sometimes we can easily fall into thinking, this is how, just how it is. This is how it naturally should be. This is what human relationships should look like. This is what human communities should be. And we get tricked even as the church into, cooperating with unjust structures and practices. And sometimes it takes something really strange and bizarre. And sometimes 
violent even here to get us to wake up and reveal what's actually going on is not the normal operation of things and just the way things are and just and fine and righteous. No, actually it is destructive and evil and it's not the way things are always going to be. Yeah, yeah that's good. We sometimes, we think of that word apocalypse, right? I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear just that word apocalypse, but we tend to think about that like with, you know, end of the world and, and um, uh, sort of this violent ending to the story. But the word literally means unveiling, right? You can think about it very simply as, you know, you, you think about the old traditional, the bride comes down the aisle wearing a veil. And that at that moment that the, the veil is about to be lifted, lean over to the person next to you and say, get ready for the apocalypse, right? Because this is the unveiling. And so part of what uh, Jean is saying here, this is the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So at the heart of the story is it's meant to show us something about Jesus. But as Caitlin's kind of suggesting, it's given to us in strange symbols and imagery, in some ways to make what has become perhaps all too familiar strange for us, to, to sort of shake us awake, if you will, through its symbols and imagery. And so it does take a lot of work to try to figure out the symbols and imagery. And yet, um, sometimes I think we approach it like it's... Um, uh, meant to just be decoded all the way through, mm-hmm. right? And um, like if we just get the, 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 the code right, if we get the right decoder key, then we're going to get this um, picture of, of the end of history that's going to suddenly now, we're going to know, and, and, and I think it's important to note that what's being unveiled here, first and foremost, is Jesus Christ, right? That, that this is about mm-hmm. revealing to us we're more about who Jesus is. Um, anything on that you want to play off of before I kind of jump to the next thing that I see here? Yeah, I mean, it's it's going forward a little bit, but I think it's important. There's a, a great book that you told me to read, mm-hmm. um, See the Strange yeah. by Brett Davis, that is really focused on the letters to the seven churches, which we can talk about later. Um, but each of those having this particular description of Jesus that meets the church where the church needs to be met mm. and in it can both be quite comforting and terrifying like yeah. and that fits the whole of the book of like you said the, the revelation is not just this future timeline that we decode which is would would kind of be to treat it not like the thing it is if the goal yeah. is to get to be less strange then that's sort of you know corrupting what the actual thing is but also that sometimes like the destructive or the the strange scary you know picture that's here, bizarre thing, is supposed to both be comforting to people who are oppressed and who are being persecuted and also be a scary judgment, you know, for those who are doing the oppressing. And that, like, that description of Jesus throughout the rest of these churches fits that of, yeah. like, Jesus yeah. could be really scary if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But if you're being faithful and you're wondering if you are going to be vindicated, then that is a real, a real comfort for Jesus to be revealed. Yeah, so good. So it's, a revelation, second, you see there in verse uh, two, uh, who testifies, and he uses that word twice, testimony. This is John's testimony to what he saw and he heard, this vision that he had. But then he uses this word, these words of prophecy. So we have apocalypse, testimony, and prophecy. And I think about that, Caitlin, in light of what you were just saying. Again, we tend to think about the word prophecy as though it's just about telling the future, right? So this, the, as though this is just about telling the future, and yet... 
when you look at what the nature of biblical prophecy, oftentimes at the heart of prophecy in the Bible are words of comfort to those who are suffering and words of confrontation to those who are um, practicing injustice or idolatry. And I think that's a big part of what you see through the remainder of this book, that it's intended to speak a word of comfort, a word of hope to those who are suffering, and a word of, of confrontation, a word of challenge to those who are assimilating to the empire. Let's talk a little bit about the, these seven churches, right? It gets, it gets uh, addressed to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And I think it's really important when we think about this book that we think about it in terms of, um, we talked, if you remember, about all the way back to the book of Genesis, we said Genesis is written for us, but it's not written to us, right? It's first and foremost written to that ancient audience. And so for us to really understand it, we actually have to understand something of what's being said to the ancient audience, to its contemporary situation. And sometimes we can think about Revelation so much in terms of the future that it becomes about um, things that were going to happen two millennia later, and it becomes almost irrelevant to that first century audience. But when we think about it addressed to that first century audience, suddenly we find the relevance not only to them, but also to us, right? That it's first and foremost to them. And Caitlin, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the challenges that these Christians, these people who are trying to follow Jesus in the first century world were facing, particularly as it relates to their relationship to the empire and how that kind of plays in mm -hmm. to this book. Yeah, I love um, Richard Bauckham's little book on the theology of Revelation. He starts off talking about how, in his mind, there's been so much of an overemphasis on the persecuted church is the one receiving this letter. And he really helpfully points out, if you look at these specific you know, notes to these seven churches, yes, some of them being persecuted and they are facing you know, difficulty, especially economically, which is such a theme in the book, the, the economic powers that be in the world, they're facing just the loss of their livelihood if they're not willing to, to worship the particular god of the guild of the job that they're in. But then he notes, like, that's a big part of it, right, is, is addressing those persecuted churches and saying, you know, here's the end of the story in which Christ is victorious and you are vindicated. But then also some of these churches, the word is you have completely acquiesced to what the culture is and you are, you know, comfortable in your plump, you know, circumstances and you need to be awoken to the, to the reality that you can't keep doing that without consequence. You are not being faithful to what, to what Christ has called you to. So there's, I mean, that fits our description of the world today to say that there are churches where people are being harshly persecuted physically and violently. There are churches that are being persecuted because of economic circumstances. They can't flourish in the way that humans should because they have to hide or they can't participate in the rest of the community as they normally could. And then there are lots of Christians that have acquiesced to the ways of the world and need that message of, actually, this is, like I said earlier, a terrifying message to you. Um, and, and as you said, I think it's so important to think to, that it starts with these letters to these churches when so many of that decoding impulse in us I think is just a really individual thing. Hmm. If I can sit down with this book and figure it out, then I'll kind of have some sense of calm about what is coming in the future. Instead of realizing not only is this written to these churches, this is a circulating letter to go to all these places, but that sets the context of both the frightening things and the comforting things yeah. of this book yeah. in the context of the local community of the church that we continue to belong to that tradition and heritage and in a very real sense, like one of the beautiful things about scripture, like we are, you know, 
in the same community as these people that are receiving yeah. this message to say that that's how something this strange should be interpreted as well as received mm-hmm. is in a community. I don't need to decode it myself. I exist within a bunch of people with a bunch of different concerns. I exist in the global church today that has both persecution and acquiescence. And my understanding of this needs to be shaped by that reality first. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So I, I had written down in my notes, um, there, these two, th- two ideas that you're hitting on there. Um, so these churches, John is writing to address the way in which these churches live within the ancient Roman empire. And that there are sort of these two sided, um, this, this, um, these twin dangers that he's writing to address. One is the opposition from the empire, and the other is assimilation to the empire, right? Mm-hmm. That there, some, of, some of these churches are experiencing the, the empire's opposition. Um, and I think sometimes for us as Christians in North America today, we can sort of too quickly, I think you were sort of even hinting at this, too quickly identify with the opposition side of things, right? The world is out to get us. Um, we can get, have a kind of um, persecution complex. Um, and I think we have to be very careful, especially when we think about the kind of opposition that the church is facing around the world, right? When we think about that word persecution, um, I think we have to acknowledge that, that that's a word that we ought not use too lightly to talk about the dynamics of Christians in North America because there are Christians around the world who are, who are suffering immense persecution. And so when they say happy holidays, when you pick up your coffee, like that's just a totally different thing than persecution um, uh, compared to what's happening around the world. So we can so quickly sometimes identify with that uh, experience of opposition. And yet I think one of the things that, that we need to um, be very, very aware of and that this book helps us to, to be aware of is that idea of assimilation, the way in which we can so easily become assimilated to empire, um, so assimilated to the culture around us, the cultural norms around us. I don't know if you want to um, elaborate on that at all, if that kind of even ties into some of the things that you're doing in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's become even more important to me, um, what I have been kind of focusing my studies on this first year and will continue to is particularly how we read scripture for political purposes. Hmm. And something that I think I didn't hear enough in church growing up was we have to be able to critically examine where we see ourselves in the text because we do just naturally put ourselves in some kind of position And we so frequently put ourselves in the position of the one who is persecuted or oppressed or the person who's the good guy. Like we're, of course, we're, you know, the, the one helping the person who's in need, of course, but we don't often put ourselves in the position of most of the time, the people of God who are being criticized in the prophets, who Jesus is calling out. Um, And so, especially in a place like this, especially with the letters to the seven churches thinking if I too easily hear the lines of comfort to faithful Christians and go, oh, I can take that without any, you know, critical examination, which might be right. Maybe that's the situation, like maybe that is the word you need to hear, but just being more self-reflective individually and also, you know, in your community of, have I been too quick to find myself in a place in the story that I am not really in? And if I missed the message, as you've said, to those who are assimilating, because I assume that's not my role in this story, but maybe it is. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, 
I think we'll pick up on uh, some of those thoughts as we continue moving through. Um, but one of the other things I want to make sure that we hit in this, uh, kind of these opening verses. I love what he says in verse 9 where he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And I just think that's really uh, interesting kind of uh, grouping of terms, right? We're, we're companions in suffering, companions in the kingdom, and companions in patient endurance. Um, that last word, patient endurance, is a, is a big New Testament theme. Uh, the, the word there is this word hupomone. Mone is a weight, and hupo is under. So it's a picture word of bearing up under a weight. And um, this is part of what, this is part of the Christian life, right? Is that we're called to be those who, who bear up under the weight of this life, of the, the struggles and suffering of this world. Um, Anything that you kind of catch in those, the significance of those words as it, as it relates to sort of setting up what's happening in the rest of the book, suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance? Yeah, I, I think there's also, we have a tendency to kind of land on one end of this or the other to be really focused on suffering and endurance or to be really triumphalistic and focused on the, you know, brother and companion in the kingdom. Like yeah. we're doing all the things and we've got... And I love that all of those are just together. together. There's not like there's a moment of this and a moment of that. We move from one to the other. Like we start right. in suffering and then we move to the kingdom. It's like, no, there's suffering and there's kingdom and then there's more suffering. And then there's a, and until the very end, they're all going to be caught up with each other. Yeah. And that's just yeah. um, and there's something really difficult about that. But there's also some hope in knowing um if I feel like I've gotten a glimpse of the kingdom and then afterwards they're suffering, that doesn't mean I've regressed. <laughs> We're just all, you know, bound up in all of those things together until Christ returns. That's good. So this is, book is 22 chapters. We've read the first 11 verses. We're going to jump to the end in a minute. But we can't, obviously can't possibly cover everything in between the beginning and the end. But one of the things that as you work your way through a book like this to be aware of is some of the themes that emerge. Kayla mentioned earlier a great book. I do think if you're going to study Revelation, if you're going to work through this on your own, it's good to have guides to help you along the way. And um, the book that she mentioned by Brett Davis called uh, See the Strange, the Gospel According to Revelation is a wonderful guide to kind of walk through just piece by piece through this story. But Caitlin, I wonder if you can think about with us some of the themes that emerge from the book. And particularly as you think about those themes, again, how does that, what's the relevance of those themes for us today, right? How do we see the connection between what's going on in this weird old book and our lives today? What do you see? Yeah, I think that's such a helpful way too to think about it because you know we, we should be looking to books like that one to help us. But also, if you if you are just like immersing yourself in reading it, it's helpful to kind of have like just touchstones to be like I I can recognize these kinds of things, and one of those things I think is. And it, that the comforting one of those themes is just the reign of God, mm. both in the midst of real suffering and injustice, um, and then really triumphant in in the ultimate end. And one of the the places I love this is in chapter five. There's a very beginning of chapter five. Um, this kind of moment where you you can hear the expectation of people. Um, it says in verse two, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll. One of the elders said, this is in verse five, one of the elders said, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I, when I read that, I feel 
you know, especially if, if I was in a really difficult, you know, persecuted moment thinking, okay, here is the triumphant moment. Here's a picture of the reign of God in my broken world. And then it enters into this description of the lamb who has been slain. And so both, I think the theme of the reign of God in a triumphalist way, but also, I mean, in, in an ultimate sense, but also the reign of God being unexpected and not following the just ways of the world. Um, And this goes back to that revelation, um, revealing, unveiling kind of idea of, we can so easily just pick up the ways of the world when it comes to power and authority and, and ascribe that to Christ and his reign on earth and say, these models that I have seen of humans rule and humans reign, I'm just gonna kind of take those and plop those onto what I think God is doing. And that constant unexpected description of the reign of God as a comfort, like it is really like a yes, ultimately these, these powers and principalities are just, they, they've already been defeated. We're just in the last stages, they're groaning, but they are ultimately gonna just die. Mm. But also that reign doesn't look the way that I think it would look. It looks like the lamb who has been slain. And that is comforting in its own way as people who are who are struggling or suffering to know that that's an identification with Christ. Even in this like triumphalist moment, there is still the suffering that Christ understands for people who are going through in their own lives. So good. Yeah, so the conquering lion is the slain lamb. Um, and that really at the heart of this book, I think, is this idea that we are called to live the way of the lamb. Right? In the midst of this messed up, broken, violent world, we are called to live the way of the Lamb, the one who, whose whole life is characterized by his self-giving, his sacrifice. Um, and, and as you mentioned, this is this picture that John gets into the throne room of heaven, right? At the center of the universe, right? When the, when the veil is pulled back and you see what's going on at the center of the universe, the throne of God, that God is reigning over this world that he has made. And the one who is on the throne is the slain lamb. And a wonderful word of um, comfort and challenge to us um, to remember in the midst of all the, um, all the stuff that we're enduring in this life, all the things that we face in this life, that at the center of reality is the throne of God. And mm-hmm. on the throne of God is the slain lamb. Um, other themes that, that sort of strike you as you think about the book um, a big one that that is relevant to me is just this description of the ways of the world in very religious terms, mm-hmm. um, especially the kind of economic ways of the world. Um, another book that you recommended to me, Reading Revelation Responsibly, mm-hmm. talks about the civil religion that's yeah. described yeah. here. Yeah. And um, I think if you read Revelation with that kind of in mind of other examples, you could think of this in... America, we've seen kind of the syncretism of American patriotism with um, Christian faith. Um, But we also, I mean, you could see that in all sorts of other cultural contexts where you think, okay, something has gone awry where we have taken on the ways of our culture or our nation and kind of combined them with our faith to make something really messed up. If you read Revelation with that in mind, it is kind of eerie, (laughs) like the things that are described when it comes to the way that people as human beings are just made to worship something and they will worship the wrong thing if it's presented to them and their hearts have been, have been, you know, turned towards the wrong thing. Um, And so just seeing that consistent theme of it's not 
worship God or do this other thing. It's there are options for you to worship. And this idolatry happens in economic forms and political forms. And we've described, I think one of the benefits of Revelation describing it in such bizarre ways is that Christians in the first century could see the Roman Empire described in these strange terms. And Christians in the 21st century could see their own countries, not just America, plenty of others where there's those kinds of syncretistic things are happening and see this is the path that it leads to. It leads to destruction and idolatry. But also, if you think it's going to get you any benefit, ultimately it will not. Those kinds of idolatrous forms of worship will be revealed for what they really are and destroyed. Yeah. This to me is one of the big things that makes Revelation very, very timely is it is a critique of this tendency to sort of fuse the, that assimilation of faith and empire. And I do think we find ourselves living through a cultural moment where we're, we're seeing and aware of ways in which that plays out in 21st century North American culture. The, the, the tendency of Christian nationalism to merge together Christian faith and conviction with this kind of um, uh, unhealthy uh, attachment to national identity. Um, you got to talk a little bit about because you've been uh, you've been uh, tweeting about it or posting on Instagram this uh, the, this Bible that you came across recently, right? The uh, that that is an ex a, a kind of artifact of this merging of talk a little bit about just some of the things that you've seen as you look through this thing. I forget what it's called, but. Yes, uh, the American Patriots Bible, which I have learned, yeah, I was doing some research on this, and there have been many iterations of this particular Bible. Um, there have been, like, for, especially from, like, the 60s, 70s on, so many versions of this. There's a women's version of the American Patriots Bible that focuses on women in American history. Um, and I think what's so, it's, I'm so glad you brought that up, because it's such a good comparison to what's happening in Revelation in terms of image and emotion. Like, what's being described is not just it is this but it's not just a theological problem in someone's head that they have confused their nation and their god instead what it is is sort of an affective like a, a an emotional connection to things and it comes to us often through images and stories and so the american patriots bible is not just kind of um just words of here's a passage from scripture and here's some american history there's lots of that but there's also, you know, a depiction of Moses with an American flag next to it, or a depiction of, you know, Jesus next to soldiers on a beat. You know, there's all of these conflations of American patriotic images that most of us, if you have grown up in America, have learned the emotions that come along with that. Even if you didn't necessarily want to, or you had mixed feelings about your country, or um, but I'm, I'm a military kid. I grew up hearing, you know, stories about things and seeing images. And there's a pride that wells up in you. And you kind of fall into a love of this story. And to a certain extent, that isn't bad. People having a certain um, affection for the people closest to them is a really good, you know, Christian yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, but having it in an idolatrous way is not. And so often that idolatry comes to us in the form of believing wrong stories about the world and having the wrong kinds of emotional responses to things and that's described in revelation and it's so described in this bible because even if someone picked it up and went i don't believe these connections i don't believe that you know i should have this very nationalistic way of thinking when those images from your faith those ideas and stories and literal pictures in the book of your faith get juxtaposed with american images that you have all these emotional connections to it can produce something that you might not have even intended. And it takes a lot of work to undo that kind of emotional attachment too. 
Yeah. Yeah, so it's altogether appropriate that we would have an affection for, uh, for our land, for the people of this land, and for our highest ideals as a land. Um, but when those things get wedded together with our Christian faith, that it becomes difficult to see where they, um, uh, the, 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 um, the, the, the ties become so strong that then if we ever find ourselves in a position where these things are actually at odds with one another, we can be so disoriented that we don't know how to respond because we've always seen them as so sort of deeply, intrinsically tied together. And I think we have to have a very uh, uh, a careful kind of critical distance, right? Uh, there can be this place of affection for allegiance to, but also kind of critical distance from and a recognition. And that's, again, part of what's going on in Revelation is calling us to find our ultimate sense of identity and allegiance in the lion who is the lamb. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's good. It's good. Um, anything else around that? We have just a few minutes left in terms of themes, and then I just want to focus on a little bit more on kind of the end of the story. I think the only thing I would add, too, to just kind of be watching for while you're reading in the middle is covenant faithfulness of God to his people. Um, sometimes something else that can happen when we're reading a lot of these passages, especially in a scary moment in time, whether it's happening those early days when, I mean, it's, it can, it's been scary for vulnerable people the whole time, but especially in the beginning when it felt like the world is falling apart and what is happening or now with the situation in Ukraine feeling like what, you know, I am scared for what's happening. It can be really easy. And I've seen, you know, people, Christians do this, find passages or verses from this, that not only incite kind of fear about what's happening in the future when this is supposed to be a comforting, <laughs> a comforting message, but also that that kind of imply that we should be watching for what's happening because we might unknowingly get kind of conscripted into the wrong side of this mm-hmm. battle. Mm-hmm. Instead of understanding both a larger theological point about the perseverance of the saints and God's faithfulness to those that are his own, but that being also a part of the message in Revelation, that God is faithful, yes, in people's suffering, but also is not going to allow them to be to be led astray by the events that are happening in their world today. That we don't have to come to these texts or to events in our world with that kind of existential fear. We're going to be afraid when things are frightening, when, when wars could come or when diseases happen. We, it's natural for us to be afraid of those things, but we don't have to have that kind of existential fear that maybe, you know, if we get a vaccine or if we wear a mask, that we are somehow identifying ourselves with the wrong side of things. That's, that, that's really to deny the faithfulness of God to his people that's described throughout all those passages. Yeah, that's good. And yeah, I mean, part of the whole point of the book, in some really important sense, is for us to know how the story ends so that we can persevere in hope, right? That um, I talk about the idea of what we have here is biblical eschatology. Eschatology is the theology of the last things, the, the culmination of history. And sometimes people approach that whole subject of eschatology as that decoding project or, you know, figuring out timelines and sequence of events. And I don't think that's the point at all. I think the point of biblical eschatology, pointing to the end of the story, is really two things, hope and ethics, right? Hope, that is, knowing how the story ends sustains us through times of struggle and pain and suffering. And the reality is, is that we will all go through those seasons, right? That we will all endure times of 
of deep pain, um, of deep suffering. And knowing the end of the story that we're going to read in just a minute gives us a deep sense of hope in the midst of those times. But the other thing is ethics. It's intended to shape the way that we live now, that we're supposed to live now in light of the way that we know the story ends, that we're supposed to figure out what it looks like for us to live now as followers of the slain lamb. So I want to hit one more theme and then actually read some stuff from the very end of the story. And the theme that I want to hit is the way in which the book of Revelation actually gives us the culmination of this, uh, what we talk about around here at IBC, this multi-ethnic vision of God. Caitlin, I think you know this has been a big theme for us as a church over the course of the last couple of years, and you've heard it in my teaching for years even prior to that, but that, that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation emphasizes this idea of the multi-ethnic vision of God. And I think you see that beautifully portrayed in, in one passage that I want to look at with you in chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse uh, 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. So when John gets this vision of heavenly worship, the vision that God sees uh, the, the vision that John sees is this beautiful multi-ethnic vision. Caitlin, you want to elaborate on that at all? Any, any comments from you on I, what, what we see there in Revelation 7? I just want to add one of the other things that's really shaped my reading of Revelation is um, Richard Mao has this little book uh, on Isaiah where he's talking about the, the kings, the rulers of the nations bringing their yeah. gifts into the New Jerusalem. And it's so aligned with this passage in part because... Like we could just read that in Isaiah and think, okay, the kings bring like whatever. That's a you know image that's uh, culturally relevant for them, but not for us. But I think one of the things it's describing is if all of the rulers of these nations, of these different nations with different cultures and backgrounds, and um, you know everything that kind of defines who they are as a community, are bringing their gifts into the New Jerusalem. Like I have this image that is not described in Isaiah, <laughs> but I have this image of like people bringing the food that they love yeah, yeah. or people bring the clothing that they love, like this image of appropriately perfected and redeemed because all of the things that we do are, you know, impacted yeah. by the fall, but like those cultural goods continuing on into eternity as a good gift of the diversity of all humans. And I love when I experience new things in the world today, like when I, when I meet someone who comes from a different background than me and they share something like that with me, it always reminds me of that picture of the Kings bringing those gifts into the new Jerusalem. So good. It strikes me, you know, one of the, one of the kind of problematic ways that I think sometimes people with good intention approach discussions of race and ethnicity is the idea of colorblindness. I don't see color. I don't see color. And, and I think that the impulse underneath that oftentimes is, Again, well-intentioned, like trying to say this, this, and yet it can actually become really problematic um, because the Bible sees color. The, the God made our ethnic and cultural differences. They are part of his design and intention, and they are good. How does John know that this is people from every tribe and nation and people and language? He knows it by what he sees, 
And he knows it by what he hears. And that he sees this vision of heavenly worship as this beautiful, diverse, multi-ethnic um, uh, multitude gathered before the throne of God, worshiping him. So this is, I think, the culmination of um, this multi-ethnic vision that we see from Genesis to Revelation. Part of the reason why we talk so much around here about being a multi-ethnic church is that we want our worship at our church to look more and more like the worship of heaven. Right? Jesus taught us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, um, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if it's God's will that the worship in heaven is this beautifully diverse multi-ethnic multitude, for us to pray the Lord's Prayer is to say, God, would, would you create in us, in our worship, something that looks more and more like the worship of heaven? So let me flip with you to Revelation 21 and a little bit of 22, and we'll wrap this up tonight. Revelation 21, um, if you uh, caught the last sermon in our series on the story of God, it, was, it covered these first five verses. And I want to just geek out with you. Can I, can I be Dr. Jones with you for just, uh, you, you may be going, you've been being Dr. Jones for the last uh, 45 minutes. But uh, I want to geek out with you as it relates specifically to this idea of the multi-ethnic vision of God. These beautiful words from Revelation 21, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And you can go back and listen to that sermon if you missed it to know why you don't have to be too bummed out about that line about no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people or with the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, it's that line right there that I want you to catch. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and, and be their God. The reason that line is really important here is it's an echo of uh, a line that's repeated multiple times throughout the Old Testament. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. They will be his people, God himself will be their God. It's over and over and over in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament... It's always referring to the people of Israel. They, the people of Israel, will be his people. The word for people, this is me now getting a little bit, I'm geeking out with you. The word for people um, is a word that we learn when, in seminary, first year seminary um, Greek. I, I remember flipping through my flashcards. And this word um, uh, for people, uh, laos, laos is the word, and it's a collective singular, Okay. Collective means there's a, a bunch of us in it, but it's a, a singular, a people, singular people, laos, the people of Israel. The plural form is laoi. That means peoples, multiple peoples, a, a plural of peoples. And interestingly, when you see this throughout the pages of the Old Testament, they will be his laos, laos, his people, Israel. When you come to the very end of the biblical story, the word is different. The word is laoi. It's the plural. They will be his peoples. That idea that at the end of the story, this multi-ethnic vision of God has come to its fruition. Um, they will be his peoples from every tribe and nation and people and language. And now they're all his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Friends, this is um, perhaps my favorite passage in all the Bible, and I'm tempted to go on all kinds of rabbit trails. You can go back and listen to the sermon, but just that, that line, that beautiful tender image of God wiping every last tear from every last cheek, right? This is the heart of the message of Revelation for us. We know how the story ends. It ends with God's personal presence coming and dwelling with us, with us, with us. It ends with the throne of God that, that John saw at the center of the universe. Now, here in the new heavens and new earth, God's just reign, uninhibited. No one left to challenge God's just reign. And it ends with God's perfect peace, shalom. He will wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Caitlin, we're running out of time here, so we're not going to read too much more here of the, the end of the story. But any final thoughts from you on what we see here as the, as the book concludes? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that I, that might be less obvious reading this, I mean, it is a beautiful, comforting, and I love how it's both cosmic and so personal. Yeah. Every tear from every eye, but also all of creation yeah. redeemed and re- I'm making all things new. Um, but one thing that I think, going back to, to the conversation about uh, political theology, is the description here is of a city, um, which both obviously has, you know, connotations to a people awaiting Jerusalem and the meaning of that for, for people. But I just think it's significant, too, that, you know, there's so many negative descriptions in scripture of a city And sometimes we can kind of learn from that, okay, our most organic human relationships, our family maybe, or our church, those are good and fine. But once we start getting into the broader city, the community that we're a part of, and especially once we start thinking about things like laws or rules or regular, then we're just getting into mucky, icky stuff that Christians should probably avoid or get obsessed with. We have no (laughs) option but to be obsessed with or just gross and don't touch. And I love that the description here it, and I learned this from you, you know, mirrors the, the commission given in Genesis to rule and reign. And it, and it doesn't just mean, it, it does mean on a really foundational level to just do the things humans are supposed to do to build flourishing communities. But in, in the middle of those story of those two stories, that includes the messy work that creating a flourishing community requires, means laws and regulations that protect the most vulnerable people in our communities. And yet, while it will be very changed in eternity, we won't have to create a law to to stop people from hurting each other. It doesn't mean that we lose this sense of part of what it means to be human is to create a flourishing community with each other. And the reason that that's so significant to me is instead of thinking of this work that we're doing on earth today, including the kind of normal things of maybe showing up at a town, you know, hall meeting or going to a city council meeting or discovering that your next door neighbor has some particular need and you can do something to advocate for them. Instead of that work, just sort of being the messy ickiness of being in a fallen world, which it is impacted by that. But instead now that work I think is really dignified and honored because it allows us the chance to practice the kind of work that we will do in eternity without the constraints of the fallenness of the world around us and our own sinful hearts. And so we can kind of take comfort in knowing that there's this beautiful picture and also the energy and motivation to say the work that I'm doing now will be appropriately redeemed and, and 
uh, perfected in eternity, and that gives it a lot of meaning and significance now. So good. So good. So the story of the Bible begins with a man named Human and his wife named Life in the garden called Delights. And God charges them to rule and to fill and to subdue the earth. And the story of the Bible moves from the garden to the city. Um, this new Jerusalem come down out of heaven. And it's interesting, we'll just read these final verses and then we'll open it up for our Q&A time. Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of, of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, which we saw back in the story of the garden, the tree of life. Um, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And I love this line. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And I think the nations could use a little healing. Don't you? The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. There'll be no need for the lamp, uh, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And there's actually a little bit of ambiguity in that last line. They will reign. Who's the they? Is it God and the Lamb? Well, yes, but but it's also the people. Because all the way back at the beginning of the story in the garden, they were created to, to rule, to reign over God's creation on his behalf. And the story begins in the garden and moves to here, the, the city, the new Jerusalem, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. So, Kaylin, thank you so much. We're going to do a little bit of Q&A time. So they've had a chance, as we've been talking, to, uh, to text in some questions. And so Camille's going to come and, uh, and open up the questions for us. Yeah, Caitlin, hopefully, I don't know if you can see me or not right here. Okay, <laughs> awesome. Um, you can't see our... Board. So I'm going to try to read it slowly so that way you can um, uh, properly think through the question. So our first question says, even if I understand the theological emphasis of Revelation, how should I respond to others who use Revelation as a lens through which to view modern events? Interesting. Got thoughts You're on that? I mean, I want the first thing that comes to my mind is um, having a sense of the history is important. Um, so, for example, I've had so many people in the last few weeks, you know, say my family member, my pastor or someone at my church is telling me that what's happening in Ukraine is clearly this verse in Revelation. Like, that's what it's describing. And if we if we had a little bit of, you know, historical understanding of the church, we would know that, like, OK, that verse you've pointed to has been used you know, dozens of times throughout history to describe a particular event. And so I think having a sense of we've gotten it wrong a bunch of times and, and we've gotten it wrong every time we've been certain, you know, that this is what's <laughs> happening and that, you know, that should give us some humility when we're, when we're thinking about it. But I think in terms of talking about it with someone, I don't know that making the, well, here's all these examples is really going to help someone. I think when it comes to, especially something like revelation, if you're having a conversation with someone else about it, who's trying to kind of read it through this lens. It is also helpful if you have a relationship with them to take a step back and say, are they really terrified of what's happening right now? Hmm. Is there some control they're trying to find in this text? And 
I want to have the conversation about the theology and, and what's happening in scripture, but stepping back and also saying, is there something emotionally, personally happening that I need to take time to address? Because if someone is scared, we're not going to have a good conversation about the theology of this. I kind of have to deal with that first. That's good. That's good. Very good. Thanks. Uh, our next question. Are there elements in this book that we should take literally or is it all symbols and metaphors, a highly stylized account? You want to talk about that meaning of that Actually, word yeah. literally and how we <laughs> think about that? Sure. I mean, literally is a weird word. We, it doesn't really mean anything sometimes. We, use, we throw it around um, a lot. Um, I think so much of what's happening in this book is intended to be a symbol. So for me to treat it seriously is to treat it as a symbol. If I was to say, I really think this monster is doing this, that, like that wouldn't be to treat the book like what it's supposed to be. And so sometimes we treat literally as a synonym for seriously hmm. or reading scripture literally as if that means we think it has high authority or have a high view of scripture. Um, there are things in this that should be taken literally in the sense of those early letters to the churches. No one needs to kind of get too weird with what's happening there. It's pretty straightforward. This is how you should act. And this is how you're, you know, acting in the wrong kinds of ways. But then when we're getting into all the symbolism stuff to not read it literally, to read it as it's intended, which is this strange, you know, genre of apocalypse doesn't mean that what we end up interpreting doesn't apply to our lives. Like it being symbolic doesn't mean it doesn't matter to me. It has, oh. but figuring out the, you, it hung up for just a second, but you're back, so you're good. Okay, good. I was like, we made this whole time with no tech issues, but. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's really the question is, am yeah. I taking this seriously for the genre that it is? And do I recognize that whether there's something that should be literal or something that should be symbolic, it should obligate me to act in a certain way. I don't yeah. get out of anything yeah. either way. Yeah. I, you know, I, um, that word literally is a, um, a, a tricky word. Part of what we've been trying to do is help us to read the Bible literarily. Now, I don't mean that merely as the whole thing is just a bunch of images and symbols, but actually reading it as the kind of literature that it is. And what we find is as we study it, it has clues in itself to help us understand the kind of literature that it is. Um, and so the kind of literature that this is, is apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature employs images and symbols to make points. So, for example, that word literally, it can sometimes be a sort of like a wooden, like, so there's a, in, in the passage that I read early on, there's some reference to the seven spirits of God. Well, do we read that literally, right? Does God have seven spirits? Um, a wooden interpretation would force us to say, well, it says it right there. It must mean God has seven spirits. What you find, if you pay attention literarily to the way that the apocalyptic genre works, is that numbers work like adjectives, right? So the point in oftentimes the numbers in the book of Revelation isn't so much to count as it is to say, what's, what's it, how's that number functioning? And so the number seven is a number of perfection, right? And so this is pointing out something about the, the, the perfect nature of God. And so I think we have to read the Bible literarily. That doesn't mean we read the whole Bible merely as images and symbols and nice stories, right? It points to concrete realities, 
but to recognize what kind of literature are we dealing with. So, for example, if you heard the sermon a couple weeks ago, the giant gold cube, like you can read that in very wooden, literal kinds of ways, but if you read literarily, you recognize what's being described there is a giant world-encompassing holy of holies. And that does point to something that is real and a future hope that we can hold on to. But I think we have to be very careful not to say, well, it just means there's this big gold box sticking out the side of the globe. Um, there's, it's pointing to something that's, that's even deeper and richer and truer than that, if you read it within the kind of literature that it is. Thank you so much for that. That's really helpful. Um, this question says, I've heard some say that Revelation has already been completely fulfilled, pointing to the fall of Rome and Nero. Is there credibility to that claim? This doesn't seem like the New Jerusalem, mm. meaning our, I guess, current mm. time. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I personally don't find it persuasive to think that the entirety of the book has been, and, and I don't think almost anyone really seriously treats the whole thing as if it's already happened. Um, and, and there could be good reasons to read certain parts of it as if it's intending it to kind of describe a particular event that's already happened. The other thing though, I think in general, when I'm reading scripture, because of what kind of thing I think scripture is, because I think the Holy Spirit not only inspired the words of the text, but also has allowed it to be preserved through the church throughout, you know, centuries, I expect it to speak to things now. And so if the goal of the person interpreting certain parts of it, or maybe the whole thing as if it's already happened, if the goal of that is, no, this doesn't matter anymore. Um, it, that doesn't treat scripture like the thing that I think yeah. it is, which yeah. is a word for the people of God throughout all of time. And so on one hand, there could be kind of specific positions when you're thinking about end times that that really matters for. And that's, its own thing that, again, I don't find that position particularly persuasive, but in terms of just like Christian living, it should, that shouldn't make a huge difference to say that even if parts of this could have described an event that already happened, they also describe how human communities continue to exist and the, the powers and principalities that continue to impact them. And so it should continue to, you know, impact how I think about my community and my life and the way that I live. Yeah, that's good. The fancy word for this view is the preterist view. And the idea is that, that it's all already happened. Um, and it's all about the first century world. And I think part of what I wanted to try to do when we started this was to say, if it's all about the first century world, it's not for us. But if it's all about the future world, then it wasn't for them. But actually, how do we read this as recognizing that it was for them and for us, that it's always timely, that it's always relevant, that it's always got something to say that is a word of both challenge and a word of comfort. So like Caitlin, I don't find that, that view that says this is all just all first century, all ancient stuff, has nothing really to, to do with us. I don't find that persuasive for what actually we find here in the book when we read it as the kind of literature that it is. Okay, we'll do one more. Do you have one more or no? Nope, that's, that's it? it for All now. Right. Thank you so much, All Caitlin, right. for Zooming in with us and spending the evening with us. And thank you, Barry, so yeah. much. Absolutely.